second chapter, we begin to read at the first verse. Paul writes, Let me tell you how hard I have worked for you and for the people in Laodicea and for those who do not know me personally. I do this that their hearts may be filled with courage and that they may be drawn together in love and have the full wealth of assurance which true understanding brings, and so that they will know God's secret, which is Christ himself. He is the key that opens all hidden treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. I tell you then, do not let anyone fool you with false arguments, no matter how good they seem to be, but even though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit. And I am glad as I see the resolute firmness with which you stand together in your faith in Christ. Since you have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, live then in union with him. Keep your roots deep in him. Build your lives on him and become ever stronger in your faith as you were taught and be filled with thanksgiving. If you happen to be one of those individuals who has come here today hoping that during this period your knowledge would be enlarged, your understanding deepened. If you're one of those individuals who wish that you could claim those promises and blessings which the Bible say, says belongs to you, if, if you happen to be one of those individuals who secretly longs for that strength which can allay fear and frustration, and you are earnestly hoping to find that strength to shoulder your God-given responsibilities, you are a person who is looking for a miracle, or at least hopes to see some dramatic victory over the powers of evil, then you have come to the right place. And you are standing in the tradition of that young father who came unto Jesus, about whom Mark tells us, who said unto our Lord, Lord, help my faith, I believe in thee, help my unbelief. You are an individual, whether you know it or not, desires cultivation for your faith. If he says it's a very perplexing thing, no man can buy it, no man can earn it, it's a gift of God. If you have even just a little easy bit of faith, you have it because God has given it to you. To be able to have salvation, this is a gift. To be able to have faith in yourself, this is a gift. To be able to have faith in tomorrow and, and in the world and that God is still in control of the world, that's a gift. For as the Bible says about salvation, so it is about every bit of faith, for salvation 
is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own. It is the gift of God. But like many of the gifts of God, and though he be the author and the finisher of our faith, he expects us to help him, to depend upon him, and to use him in cultivating our faith. Just as God is the one who gives growth to the seed. And without God's guidance and strength and providence and benevolence, no seed would ever grow. We all know, though, don't we, that if we cultivate the ground around that seed, that plant will grow bigger and better. So it's the same thing with faith. Faith is a gift. God is its author. And we have it. But God expects us to cultivate our faith because it's only when we help him and use him and allow him to help us that our faith becomes bigger and better than what it is today. Well, how does one cultivate his faith to find a living, dynamic, powerful faith? The scripture is helpful in many of its different teachings. And I think, first of all, we can gather many of the teachings together under the one general heading which says, you're never going to cultivate your faith nor have a living faith until you have that inner life of personal and private daily devotion. In other words, you are really not going to be able to know the power of God in your life and do those things that he created you for and he expects you to do until you practice the presence of God in daily devotion. And what I mean by daily devotion is that practice where you set a period aside in every day and you meet regularly with your God where you surrender your will, your ideas, your mind, and your body to the presence and the power and the teachings of Almighty God. Where you spend more than just a few minutes, but rather a dedicated, disciplined attitude to the presence of God. How long do you spend? Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan, used to get up at four o'clock in the morning for his devotions. John Wesley, in his diary, tells us that for years he spent one hour every morning and one hour every night in his personal devotions. Kenneth Scott Lauderette, the greatest historian in our day, who recently was called to the church triumphant, says in his autobiography that when he was in college he started the practice of the morning watch. Those of our young people who have been at camp for the last 13 or 14 years know what the morning watch is. And that he started that. And when he wrote his autobiography a few years ago at the age of 80, he said that for 60 years, every day, he spent from 15 moments, minutes to an hour in Bible study and in personal prayer, and he contributed that time as being the time when God became to him a reality of a constant companion and a living guide. 
I don't think you can do it in less than 15 minutes. Probably will take more like a half an hour, and I know all of you right now think that's impossible. I don't have the time. I live in a busier day than those giants and saints of yesteryear. Dag Hammarskjöld, remember him? Former Secretary of the United Nations. It was after his, what seemingly was an untimely death, that his book, Markings, was published. And in it, it proved that this man was a great man of meditation. He was a great student of the scripture. And if a man with that kind of a schedule that he had could read the Bible, so can you and so can I. He had the time because he took the time. He felt it was the most important thing that he could do. And he scolds us in his book, if we don't take time for prayer and Bible reading and meditation, he says, how can you expect to develop your sense of hearing if you're not willing to listen? That's what morning devotion is, or evening devotion, or whatever circumstance determines your time when you will set apart a portion of each day for prayer and meditation. It's, it's waiting. It's silence. It's just thinking upon the great mysteries of life. It's prayer. Remembering, of course, that prayer is not just something that is used in an emergency. Nor is it something that we use only when making specific requests. It is conversation, a two-way conversation, where you speak and where you listen. Conversation that is not filled with stilted phrases, but where you enjoy the language that you use with anyone whom you love and with whom you converse. It is a time where you use simple language and you listen. It is, some, it is a time when you take your Bible with an open mind. You read the open page, and I don't mean just reading a few verses here or there, but the great passages, the lengthy segments, those things which are within a particular context. And you read, and you reread, and you study, and you underline, and you ask questions, and you take notes. And you keep asking, God, what is this saying to me today? Maybe use some of the devotional material which is available out in, in our literature rack and which is advertised in today's bulletin. Stop by a library, a bookstore. You, you can find all sorts of notes, devotionals to set you on the way, but nothing, absolutely nothing can stand in the way of this time of personal and private devotion for your inner self. If you allow trivialities, trivialities, laziness, the pressures of the day, to allow these to interrupt that precious hour or that precious time, that's like performing plastic surgery on a hair lip when the patient is already dying with lung cancer. Martin Luther said, you can no more as a Christian live your life without prayer and devotion than you can be alive without breathing. So this is how you cultivate faith. And I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I don't think there's any other way you can do it without the devotion, without strengthening the inner self the inner person through regular personal and private devotion. And then once you do this, you'll find that your strength and your faith 
becomes greater, and you will find added to this a necessity to have a growing intellectual life in rational Christian thought. In other words, you will find that to cultivate your faith, emotion is not enough. You must have a faith that is rooted and motivated from fact and from reason to be able to give an answer for the hope that is in you. You must be an individual who, in other words, has put his mind to work in his religion as well as his heart. Now, there are many people today who are dissatisfied with their faith, and they have a perfect right to be, because their faith is built basically upon the faith that they learned as a child. There are many in the world today who are dissatisfied with their faith simply because they are depending upon vague memories of what somebody taught them in a Sunday school class a long time ago. In other words, they've just not grown up in the faith. They are individuals who are competent in their field, individuals who, who are knowledgeable in things that are happening all about them, individuals who are conscientious and forward-looking in their citizenship, but they haven't grown one iota in their knowledge of Christianity in the last 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. And then they wonder why their faith is not stronger. Phillips Brooks, one of the greatest preachers of yesteryear, tells us that there are two types of faith. The faith, of the, the faith of tradition and the faith of conviction. The faith of tradition is the one that is handed down to us. It's a hand-me-down faith, a faith that someone has told us to believe in and we believe, a faith that someone else has worked through his mind and we hold to it because someone else held it. But this is the kind of faith, this hand-me-down faith, that when in the presence of temptation and trial, it does very little but let us down. It takes the faith of conviction, the faith that you have founded through your own struggle and study, the faith that has gone through the grist mill of your own mind, the faith that you have been able to come to accept because it makes sense to you. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, if your faith doesn't make sense to you, how do you ever expect to explain it to someone else? You see, this is the kind of faith that Jesus wants us to have. I don't know where we ever got the idea that if you were a believing man, you could not be a thinking man. That's not true. And one of the weaknesses in the church and in the Christian tradition today is that many of us have not been preaching hard enough on the basic themes of Christianity, and many of our people are stumbling and falling today because they really can't give a reason for the faith that is within them. We're trying to do something about that in this particular church, and I enjoin you to be with us in our attempts. But to get back to the point, God wants us to be people who are putting our minds to work, to think and to think hard, because this is what Jesus Christ did, and he expects it of you and me. Did not Jesus say when asked, what is the first commandment? He answered, saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
all of your mind. Now, when he says that, you see, to think and to think hard is not an option to the Christian. It's an obligation. And any man who does not think and put his brains to work in his religion not only cheats his religion, but will find that his religion cheats him. Surprisingly or not, God respects the inquiry of the mind. He tells us that in that incident that we talk about most every Easter. Remember those two men who on that first resurrection afternoon were walking on the way to the Emmaus? You look it up, you'll find it there in the 24th chapter of Luke, and at the 15th verse, if you're reading the King James Version, this is what it says, And it came to pass that when they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, if you read that in the Greek New Testament, in the Greek, the original, you will find that that word which we so poorly translate reason is a word that means to argue, to dispute, to discuss, to get excited about. And this is the word that is used. So you see, these men were actually in a religious discussion that afternoon. They were arguing amongst themselves and with themselves as to what did the happening of the resurrection mean to society? What is God trying to do in the world today? Is, has God made a new turn in the direction that he wants us to follow? They were arguing with each other and probably with themselves, and there the scripture says, and Jesus himself drew near. And you would kind of expect, if you believe that old idea that you don't think in the Christian faith, that Jesus would say, stop your thinking, stop your discussion, but he doesn't. It says, and he went on with them, which means he not only went down the road with them, but he joined in the discussion with them. He talked with them, and perhaps for two hours on that trip to Emmaus, he was talking with his individuals as they were discussing and, and debating and using the rational processes of the mind. And it was not until the discussion was over, as they were eating dinner in somebody's dining room, that these men were conscious after their discussion that this was Jesus with them. You see, when in sincerity and in honesty we are willing to discuss and to talk and yes, even argue, Jesus goes with us. And out of this we find the Christ. And this is how you cultivate faith by doing some good, hard study and work. When was the last time that you read a good book on the traditions and the fundamentals of the faith? I know books that you can buy today only criticize the church and tell us what's wrong with us, but we need some good people and who are willing to study these great traditional writers who have been right yesterday and today and tomorrow. Get a hold of some of C.S. Lewis's work. Read J.S. Wales' Christian Doctrine. Read Harry Emerson Fosdick's The Meaning of Faith. Work through these things, and believe me, you'll be able to give an answer for the faith that is in you. And when you can do this, you will find that you are cultivating your faith, and you can become stronger people. If you don't grow in the mind, you don't grow in faith.
the devotion, you see, which comes to the inner life. The rational thought which you engage in for the intellectual life. Faith is dependent on more than that. If it's going to grow in your life, it depends upon the outer life of trust. You learn it in the Bethel series that faith is more than knowledge, more than just intellectual assent or belief to that knowledge. It's trusting that knowledge and that belief. That's faith. Trust. In other words, what we're trying to say is that you can spend all of your life in the prayer chamber or the secret closet. You can spend all of your life in the library that you're not really going to grow in faith until you are willing to trust what you already know about faith. J.S. Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides, and he was interested in translating the Gospel of John into an aboriginal language. And he was doing the first chapter of John, and he couldn't find a word in the native tongue to describe faith and belief. He looked, he looked everywhere, he listened to everyone, and he, he couldn't find that word. And one day a little boy came to us an errand, on an errand, and, and he came into the missionary who was busy at his desk, and because the man did not want to be disturbed, he motioned to the little boy to go over and sit in a white wicker chair that was on the other side of the room, and the boy didn't understand. An individual who had grown up in a hut and was used to sitting on the floor didn't quite know the advantage of a white wicker chair. So the man knew he had to stop, and he told the boy, go ahead, just sit down, just, just sit down and relax. And the boy still didn't understand, and the man went over and explained, and then the boy very gingerly walked up to the seat with that part of his anatomy that anybody has to use if he's going to sit down. And he, he stood in front of that seat, and slowly he went down. He was very nervous and very tense, and his muscles became very rigid. He sat, but yet didn't let go of his weight. Then at last he relaxed, and he said in his native tongue, This will hold me, all of my weight. I can lean my weight upon it. And then it was that the missionary knew he had found his word. And, and he told the boy that this is what he was looking for, and, and he, he's right, you know, a chair, you can argue about it, you can debate about it, you can discuss about it, you, you can do everything that you want about it with a chair, but unless you sit in it, it's not going to be any value to you. It's the same with faith. You can debate it, argue it, discuss it, get read all sorts of books about it, but unless you use it, it's of no value to you. And God cannot increase your faith until you are willing to trust the faith that you already have. So if you believe that God is love, trust that love and live like a loving person. If you believe that God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ, believe it and live without the guilt complexes and all the hang-ups. If you believe that you need only love your brother, forget playing games with society and owe no man anything but love. This is the way that faith increases, by believing, by adding to the intellectual life, which comes from the devotional life. God is the author of our faith. He's also the finisher of it, but he wants us to help him as we go through life. And if we ask him to help us, he will. It's just like that father said to his little boy. 
His little boy that he took out in the garden to help clean up the big stones. And the little boy found a mighty little stone there that he just couldn't move. He grunted and he groaned. And finally he says, Dad, I can't do it. I have tried my best, but I can't move the stone. Son, you haven't tried your best. You've never done your best until you've asked your father to help you. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Amen. <clears throat> Father, be with us. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.